All right, let's drink, let's podcast. I've been doing chores around the house all day to set aside the time to spend this time uh, recording this new episode of the Content Blues podcast, and that's what I'm doing right now. How are you all this fine evening, he said to the internet. So, uh, what shall we talk about uh, we can talk about a little poetry, a little essay philosophy, a little music, some trash television, a little song, a little dance. You know the drill. This is content blues. It's gonna be whatever. Cannot find the word. Cat paw swipes at TV bird. Never learns. Absurd. That is a poem from the collection Ampersand by the uh, poet R. Cam, which is undoubtedly some kind of uh, a fake name, pseudonym. Um, I could comment on the uh, fact that uh, some of the most interesting writers are anonymous, but I feel like I already have. And in any case, uh, everyone already knows that. But, uh, our cam, I did discover on Twitter, uh, somebody who uh, I follow on Twitter uh, retweeted some of his work or, or, or made mention made mention of the, the book Ampersand, which is a collection of poetry, uh, just by showing the picture of it on, uh, on Twitter. And uh, I liked the cover to the point where I asked uh, what it was and uh, the 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 person on, on Twitter, my mutual, told me, and uh, I bought it sight unseen. I blind bought it. I, I, I believed in it that strongly. And then it arrived, and uh, I, was, I was pleased at the result because, as you, you saw from the little snippet I just read, it rhymes. It, it rhymes. And I didn't think I would enjoy that as, as much as I have. But I do. It, he, he takes the time to rhyme. Uh, which not a lot of people do anymore that I've noticed. And uh, I'm not the sort of person who believes that it has to rhyme to be poetry. I don't, I, I think that's been uh, pretty well exploded. But it is nice uh, to see that. It's nice to see someone taking the time to make something rhyme. Uh, because that's that's difficult to do in, in the, the English language. I think that was a, a line in 1984. Uh, someone talking about one of the great uh, difficulties of the English language is how hard it is to find something that will rhyme. Like, rhyming in English is is actually quite difficult. So, you kind of have to force your expression through uh, differences in phrasing in order to find the rhyme that you want. And you have to kind of like create metaphorical expression. So so rhyming in English actually forces you to be very creative or to be sloppy, uh, one of them. And that can be both good and bad. Um, because any kind of creative writing, when it gets very creative and has to kind of express itself in metaphor and analogy, uh, it's a wonderful thing to appreciate, but it's it also can make it hard to be understood. That's that's the problem people have with Shakespeare. 
um, people who don't like get Shakespeare on the first go. They think it's some kind of Middle English, and it's not. Uh, Shakespeare is very modern. Uh, when you read Shakespeare, all the words, or like 80% of them, are, are words that you know, but it's the, the, the metaphorical and uh, alternate expressions, the poetical expressions, that make people not understand what he's saying. He says, he says things in a roundabout way. He has his, his actors and characters speak in a roundabout way. Uh, because he's forcing himself into that iambic pentameter, um, that kind of forces you to be creative in how you express things so that you you fit the meter. And rhyming is is very similar to that because there's not so many combinations that rhyme. It it takes it takes a bit of work, and uh, I enjoyed. I haven't read all the the poetry in in ampersand yet, but uh, I've enjoyed reading them they 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 sound amazing when you when you said out loud they have a, a, a wonderful music to them but i'm not a hundred percent certain that i'm grasping everything which is fine because i have a copy i can go back and reread it so this kind of uh hits that poetry nerve in a way that you know reading bukowski or something like that cannot um which is, you know, not to say that I'm changing my attitude towards towards Bukowski or blank verse. I think that, when well done, uh, is also powerful. But it's really nice to, to see somebody uh, taking the time to rhyme, as I've said several times. So uh, if, you, if you are a fan of poetry, and especially if you like your poetry to rhyme, check out Ampersand by Arkham. You can find it on Amazon. It's, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty solid. Uh, my chrysalis must be to blame. I'm self-divided. I can't stand it. This fourfold riffs alike this planet bears its scars. I do the same. Wait, not only is he rhyming, he's uh, he's he's alternating the the rhyme schemes from verse to verse. It's 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 really a pleasure to read. So if you if you like poetry in any form, do check it out. On solitude, on books, on the power of the imagination, on sadness, on constancy, on fear, how our mind tangles itself up, unconscious, on anger, on virtue, on sleep, on the length of life, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen. What is this? These are the contents of the book that I mentioned earlier, the uh, Penguin Great Ideas selection of essays by Michel de Montaigne, uh, a book I grabbed that uh, from Amazon. It's uh, one of the great idea books that's kind of out of print, but is nevertheless, uh, I managed to get a copy anyway, and uh, I hadn't got a chance to read any of it yet. I finally did, and uh, it's kind of exactly what I was expected to believe. I don't have much familiarity with Montaigne. I've read a a few of his things when I was in grad school. Um, he's a guy who writes essays and shares thoughts about things. He was a, a French aristocrat who uh, had the time to do the things that aristocrats were supposed to do, according to Plato, which is invest their time and energy and idleness into uh, 
into thought. Uh, so that's that's who this guy is, and uh, he's not only a thinker, an essayist in his own right, but he's also uh, someone who drew from the thoughtful tradition of, uh, of times gone by. He quotes a lot of Romans, which is exactly the sort of thing that would have been what a French aristocrat would do during uh, during the Renaissance, during the early modern period, is to quote whatever Romans you your education had provided you access to, whatever you could get into your library. And uh, that's the sort of thing that I enjoy because uh, it carries on traditions of thought, which uh, as, uh, as a writer is something that interests me, the idea of, of carrying on ideas, of continuing to breathe life into ideas. I mean... Who, who among these men, such as Sallust and Horace and Cicero, uh, could have imagined that uh, 1,500 years after they were alive that uh, people would still be reading their stuff and, um, and, and reflecting on it and, and passing it down? Uh, I think they would have been very gratified to know that. I, I think Montaigne would be very gratified to know that people are still... Uh, reading and reflecting on him 500 years after uh, his passing. Uh, he only, he didn't even make it to be 60 years old, Montaigne did. He died in his 60th year, uh, died at the age of 59, which is not that surprising. Uh, when people got sick in those days, they got, they got sick and there wasn't much remedy for them. But uh, a candle burned brightly. While it was while it was around, and uh, this is basically uh, writing in the in the philosophical tradition. He uh, he he comes across a lot like Marcus Aurelius, except uh, he's a little more readable, a little more palatable. He he comes right to the to the point of what he's trying to say, and he's not uh, He's the, he doesn't belong to any particular school of philosophy. He's just thinking out loud or thinking onto the page, which is uh, always very readable. Um, unlike uh, unlike ampersand, you definitely don't think that you're you're missing anything. Like he's saying what he's saying, and and you're appreciating it. And uh, I find the fact that the selections are just. Uh, as I was saying, like, on solitude, on anger, on this, on that. That that also is a very ancient kind of thing. And um, these are my thoughts on this topic. And that's just all the title's going to be, on this topic, on this. Uh, it's very blunt. There's there's no pretense that uh, that the, the title's going to draw you in, you know? It's not, uh, it, this isn't mercantile writing. This isn't... Uh, he wasn't writing for an audience. He was just writing. You know, this is this is aristocratic writing. Uh, the title is blunt. Uh, you might find it interesting. If you don't, no big deal. I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not depending on on finding a, a market for this. I'm just. I'm just saying it. And that's. Uh, that's. There's a lesson in there, for creative people. Uh, in the in the self-publishing age, we're always 
thinking about turning everything into a market because we have to be publishers as well as authors. And we have to think about stuff like keywords. And all of that has always rung me very false. Uh, and I'm not sure that it works, uh, to be perfectly honest. Uh, quality, quality will out. You know, something that's for the ages will find its way to an audience regardless of, of how it's marketed. And uh, I think that's, that's really what, what ties the, sets the grade apart from the, the, the also-rans is the fact that they're just writing their art and they don't really care about how it's received. And, uh... That always feels dangerous in in this current landscape of writing and publishing. Um, it feels foreign, but uh, it's probably it's probably the best way forward. The work itself, the work has to speak for itself. Otherwise, why are you even bothering? I mean, I don't really need to bother. I have a job. I make a living. I have a house, I have a car, I have everything that I need. I don't, uh, I don't create because I need to in order to pay the bills. This is, this is something that's very much part of me. Um, which means I'm exactly like Michel de Montaigne, is the point that I'm trying to make, obviously. Uh, no, uh, I like the idea of of carrying on a tradition. Uh, I like the idea of carrying things forward, building something that will, uh, will be worth mentioning, perhaps after I'm gone. Whether that's a, a stab at immortality, I don't know, or just having something to mark the time that you were here, which might mean the same as a stab at immortality. Some, something to, to pay back for the, the privilege of having been alive uh, in this time, at this place. Here's something to mark my my time. I don't know. Um, I also kind of think that uh, <laughs> in this day and age, uh, the idea of carrying forward a tradition feels almost like a, a dissident act. Uh, because uh, the established voice... The, uh, the known voices are considered the oppressive voices now, and we want to hear the other voices. And uh, I'm not opposed to the other voices, but I, I don't want what has been passed down to be forgotten. Uh, I think it should be carried forward. Uh, I think everything should be carried forward so that it lives on in memory. Otherwise, what's the point? I now want to talk about something that I was totally not planning on talking about when I was putting together content for this episode. Um, but I decided I wanted to talk about this instead. I have I have notes written down here. Something about um, uh, Iggy Pop and David Bowie. I've been listening to some of the albums they put out as solo projects that Bowie produced, and the uh, four of them 
two for each during 1977. I was going to talk about that, but I don't know what I was going to say about them. They're good. Um, Low and Heroes and uh, The Idiot and Lust for Life. They're good albums. That's all. That's all I have to say. Um, something about television, but I don't want to talk about that. And uh, instead of all of that, uh, I want to talk about a movie that I had an opportunity to rewatch. It's a movie from the 90s. Uh, a movie starring uh, Val Kilmer, Ray Fiennes, Michelle Pfeiffer, Sandra Bullock, Jeff Goldblum, Danny Glover, Patrick Stewart, Helen Mirren, Steve Martin, and Martin Short. You're probably wondering, what film is this? Nothing's coming to mind. And it's probably a film you've seen. Um, you probably don't recognize the actors because it's animated. I'm talking about The Prince of Egypt which was the, uh, the first DreamWorks animated film and uh, probably still the best DreamWorks animated film unless, unless someone really wants to make a strong argument for Trolls World Tour, uh, the masterpiece that is Stro Trolls World Tour. Um, but yeah, I had an opportunity to rewatch this and I've seen it several times and it's one of those movies that I keep finding new things to like about it. It gets better. I keep enjoying it more. Uh, it came out in 1998. I don't remember when I first saw it, but I remember seeing it and thinking it was good. Um, but having watched it a few more times since then, uh, and recently, I was kind of... It, its virtues as a film are such that I now wonder how it got made at all. Um... I'm, I'm astounded that Hollywood made something this reverent and entertaining at the same time. Uh, it kind of blows my mind. Because um, it is a very, uh, very reverent film. It's a, it's a straight-up adaptation storytelling of the Book of Exodus with, with very few frills. Uh, most of what happens in it is true to the source material in Scripture. Um... There's very little in the movie that can't be traced to what happens in the Book of Exodus. And uh, one, of the, one of the best things about it that I, kind of struck me when I was watching it is, uh, is, is how well the film gives a biblical depiction of God. Uh, God in The Prince of Egypt is both a character who acts within the story, and also a completely otherworldly and mysterious entity that can only be interacted with in certain ways. Like, Moses gets to interact with God, everyone else just has to, like, wait upon his will. Um, which, is, which is a true way of, of depicting God. God both is a character that has feelings, that does things, performs actions, and it's also completely mysterious and otherworldly, um, you know, as as God is depicted in, in the Bible. So I like that, and uh, I like the, the heaviness of the emotion that's in it, and the way the story is told that frames these powerful emotional events. The Book of Exodus is uh, dependent uh, to a significant degree. Uh, the whole story of that 
revolves around uh, the death of children. Um, we don't usually look at it that way. We look at it as a story of liberation, which it certainly is, and as a story is of oppression and, and the dynamic between those things, and it is that. But the framing events of the Exodus are the death of children. The uh, book of Exodus begins, and the uh, movie The Prince of Egypt begins, with an Egyptian pharaoh uh, ordering the death of Hebrew babies, an entire, an entire generation of Hebrew babies um, put to the sword. And uh, in Prince of Egypt, uh, fed to the crocodiles in the Nile. And that is an event that uh, leads to Moses' entire uh, story arc. Moses' entire life was based on that event being put in the basket and sent down the Nile uh, to save him. Is, is the reason he ended up in the position that he was in. And that event is brought back again and again and again as part of Moses' development as a character in the film and as a, a monstrosity that is in some way going to have to be paid for. And it is. And the way it's paid for, both in the book of Exodus and uh, in the film, is by the final, uh, the final plague of the Pharaoh, which the film builds up to and delivers on, the, the death of the firstborn. Now, this is a, a difficult event to depict. Uh, if you're going to make an animated film about the Bible, in some sense, you're planning on having a child's audience or, or a family audience. It's a family film. That depends on the death of children. And uh, it's kind of strange when you think about it. Um, there's so much in the Bible that is uh, that is difficult to read or read about or understand because it is so it is so dense with uh, with reality and uh, and the, the real human condition as it is lived. Um, and the way the film, Prince of Egypt chooses to depict the smiting of the firstborn of Egypt is both terrifying and entirely appropriate. Uh, in the in the book of Exodus, God sends the angel of death, and that's kind of what we get here. Um, a being that is, again, otherworldly, seems to like creep in mist out of the room and just seems to be, you know, totally without body, which is what an angel is, and just takes the breath out of the children. And we see it happen in an animated film. And it's legitimately terrifying, but legitimately appropriate. And it it makes the suggestion in the way it's animated that the breath is not simply stopped. The breath is taken back to God, to whom the breath belongs. So it rides that line of depicting this this terrible event with uh, appropriate emotion, and it's it's beyond our ken. It's uh, it's sublime in the terrifying sense of sublime, and I think the the film really does itself a service in the way it does that and the way it portrays the obvious emotional responses to this. You know, at the beginning of the film, when 
Hebrew babies are being killed at Pharaoh's orders, and we see the emotion on the face of Moses' mother, Yocheved, as she sends her baby down a, the river in a basket. The, uh, the emotion is raw and real, and you feel it. And then later on, when you see Pharaoh burying his dead son, the emotion is there, and you feel it. And uh, that leads me into the next great thing about this film, which is that the antagonists of this film are entirely understandable, almost sympathetic. Um, I mean, they're still the villains of the story who do bad things for bad reasons, but they're not, uh, they're not completely malevolent and monstrous. They are doing what they think they need to do in order to further what they are. Both the, uh, the Pharaoh Seti and the Pharaoh Ramses, um, Moses' adoptive father and brother, respectively, both act out of a need to maintain uh, what they think they are, which is a god on earth, and uh, maintain the realm that they have succeeded to. And that is why they do the things that they do. They believe that this is necessary even though I think on some level they know it's not quite right. The old Pharaoh especially, there are, there are hints that he understands that what he did was awful and that it haunts him in some way, even though he, he has rationalizations and justifications for it. Uh, and that's, that goes to some really, really fine voice acting. Um... The Old Pharaoh was played by, I just read this, uh, Patrick Stewart. That was Patrick Stewart. And uh, his performance in the scene where Moses confronts him about uh, putting Hebrew babies in the Nile and killing them is, is wonderful. He, uh, he speaks with a heaviness of heart even as he justifies what he did. And I think that's great. And uh, Ray Fiennes, who plays Ramesses, uh, also injects that character with, uh, you, you, you feel the emotional weight on him. Like, he has to prove himself as a great pharaoh. He, he has the voice of his own father haunting him and pushing him forward to do, uh, to, to continue enslaving people to build pyramids for him. And the visual construction of the scenes involving... Uh, these two pharaohs are great. Uh, <laughs> you, you literally see them standing in front of giant statues of themselves, bound by their own self-conception as gods on earth. This thing looming over them that defines their actions. Uh, it's quite clever. It's, it's, uh, it really strikes the point home. Uh, the, the, a lot of the visual framing in this movie is very good. Sometimes it's so good, it, it almost seems a little too on the nose. Like the, the visual foreshadowing of the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son is, uh, it's, it's really hard to miss. Uh, might be a little too obvious, but uh, I, I won't complain about it. Um, the thing that most people take away from this uh, uh, movie are the songs. 
one of the songs won an Oscar and became a, a hit for Whitney Houston, uh, the When You Believe song, which which includes, I believe, uh, actual uh, um, actual text from Scripture when they when they break into the Hebrew. I believe that's the Canticle of Miriam, which is in Exodus 15, one of the oldest parts of the New Testament. And uh, the songs in this are all uniformly good. Uh, again, full of genuine emotion and uh, rising and orchestral and powerful and entirely appropriate to the story they're telling and that moves the story along. Uh, I'm not a giant fan of, of musicals as an art form. I like a few when I like the songs and when the songs are used in such a way that it continues the story and helps the story be told rather than, you know, stopping the flow of the story so the ingenue can trill. Um, this is the kind of movie in which the songs work and carry the story forward. Uh, there are a couple of montages in it, actually. They do most of the plagues of the Pharaoh in a, in a montage. Um, but it works, and it, it carries... Uh, it carries a story and it carries emotion, so uh, it's it's a great film. <laughs> and I didn't think so when I first saw it all those those years ago. I was like, oh, this isn't bad, not bad, pretty good. Yeah, I kind of like it. And uh, every time I, I watch it again, I I I'm astounded by by the fact that uh, a film this good about events in the Bible has become so rare a commodity. I mean. They did, an, they did an Exodus movie not long ago. Uh, what was it? Egypt, Gods and Kings or something like that. Um, and it bombed and everyone hated it. And, uh, you know, they don't make religious films the way that they used to. Um, but I will say this. Uh, I think this is probably better than the Ten Commandments. I only saw the Ten Commandments once. And it's, it's Yulbrenner and, what's his name, Charlton Heston. And they're doing the thing. It's that Technicolor Bible epic that they used to make a lot of and don't anymore. And I can't think of anything particularly memorable about it. It's, maybe I just need to rewatch it again, but it did not make a very strong impression on me. And The Prince of Egypt did. And uh, I wish, I wish they made more movies like this. I wish uh, <laughs> either DreamWorks or anybody made more movies like this. So, um, and you know, actual theatrical films, not uh, not direct-to-video things. They did make direct-to-video things uh, in as sequels to this, but uh, who wants to watch that? I don't. All right, I think that's all I'm going to do for this episode. Just wanted to talk about some things that I've encountered per the norm. I'm still working on Caligula. Uh, I've got a new uh, editing plan for that. Uh, I'm kind of excited about it. It should be exciting. And uh, I'll be back in a week or so to uh, talk to you about where I am. And uh, I'm going to announce that uh, when it's ready to, to rock and roll. So... Uh, 
Uh, thanks for spending some time with me this evening, this afternoon, today, this morning, whatever. Uh, like and subscribe. You know the drill. Take care. Have a good one.